Take out your Bibles. Begin turning to Philippians chapter 4. This morning we're going to be looking at verses 2 and 3. Philippians 4, 2 and 3. You can find it on page 982 in the Pew Bible. I want to begin with a question that I want you to be considering over the course of this sermon. Who are you angry with right now? Right now, who are you angry with? Somebody popped into your head. It's like the saying, don't think of a pink elephant. Like, don't do it. Don't think of a pink elephant. And a pink elephant pops into your head. Mine always has a bow and big floppy ears for whatever reason. Who is your pink elephant? When I ask you, who are you angry with right now? Who comes to mind? Maybe it's me. Uh, come talk to me afterwards if, if that's the case. I'm going to bug you this whole sermon. Who are you currently in conflict with? And I don't just mean kind of outright contentious, combative conflict, but simmering under the surface, I just don't get along with, or, oh, you know, I just don't like so-and-so conflict. Who are you currently in conflict with? This is part of the reason why I love expositional preaching. We don't pick our sermon topic each week. You probably listen to the pastoral prayer. You're listening to the beginning of the sermon like, oh, somebody's, somebody's in a fight. There must be conflict in the church. No, there's, there's not. This is the next text. Right? We just read and preach on what comes next, and the next text is on conflict. And I can read some of your minds already when I mention that word conflict. I know it's already starting to happen in there. You're already starting to throw up walls. You're already starting to come up with justifications and arguments. You're already somewhat uncomfortable and angry and maybe wondering if I'm talking to you. If you're wondering that, then yes, I am talking to you. Uh, if you're thinking, man, I wish so-and-so was here to hear this sermon, then I'm especially talking uh, to you. Because this is the text that God has sovereignly ordained for you to be here for today. Uh, therefore, this is for you. This is for all of us. This is for me as well. So I want to challenge you and encourage you to not do what you're already tempted to start doing. You're already tempted to tune me out and to start thinking, well, you don't know my situation. Uh, you don't know what he did to me. Uh, you don't know how wrong she was. If that's you, you especially need to listen. I want to especially encourage you to pay heed, not even so much to me, but to God's Word. I want to encourage you to consider conflict, your relation to it as a Christian, and Christ. So I've titled this sermon, Christ, Christians, and Conflict. We've now come to an important transition point in our study of this brilliant and beautiful letter to the Philippians. Last week we concluded the heart of the letter. We now come with verse 2 to the final chapter, the final section, and Paul's closing and concluding thoughts, many of which are thoughts of application. We've had lots of doctrine in chapter 3. Well, now we're going to do something with that doctrine. We've been looking at the Christian life as the imperfect but passionate pursuit of Christ. Paul wants us to know the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus as Lord, chapter 3, verse 8. And part of that knowing, chapter 3, verse 10, is becoming like Him. Knowing Christ and becoming like Christ. That's basically the Christian life. And so Paul has been encouraging us to press on in this pursuit, to know Him more and to be more like Him. 
Last week, we looked at how we can do that. We do that by watching others who are pursuing Christ, by watching out for those who are pursuing self, by walking as citizens of heaven, and by waiting for Christ. Those are four somewhat general how-tos of the Christian life. Well, now we get a little bit more specific. Now we put some meat on those bones and look at how we live as Christians, how we apply all that gospel goodness of chapter 3, how we live in light of the work of Christ in chapter 2, how we live in a manner worthy of the gospel in chapter 1, how we walk as citizens of heaven in the midst of conflict. As we'll see in a moment, it seems that Paul has been building towards this all along. As you get to this point and then you start to look back and say, oh, he's been seeding the ground uh, for this. Uh, this is not some just kind of random toss it out there. This is one of the main occasions. This is one of the main purposes of the letter. And it's to address a simmering conflict in his beloved church. And so as we look at these two verses, we want to take this opportunity to take a serious look at the reality and the danger of conflict in the church. It was in Philippi, probably the healthiest church in Scripture, which means that it's a reality and a danger to and in every church, including ours. So let's tackle this very important subject with three points. Number one, we're going to see that Christians cannot continue in conflict. There's a lot of C's today. Number two, we're going to see that Christians need Christians. Christian needs others uh, to not continue in conflict. But then number three, ultimately... Christians only need Christ to not continue in conflict. So I'm going to attempt, in love, to be as blunt and as, and as annoying as possible this morning. And I'm not even concerned specifically about Woodside. God's been very gracious to us. But I'm concerned about how little Christians are concerned about conflict. Again, I'm speaking to myself this morning. I'm concerned about how we speak to one another I'm concerned about how we speak about one another, especially online. I'm concerned about how we even think about one another and how we relate to one another. Paul has been very clear that when God saves us, he also changes us. Those whom he justifies, he also always sanctifies. To know Christ is to be like Christ. But so often in our relationships, in our relationship to conflict, we are less like Christ and more like the world. So let's look at this. I need to look at this. Let's let's confront conflict. I want to make the case this morning that Christians are not allowed to not like brothers and sisters in Christ. Christians are not allowed to not like brothers and sisters in Christ. And I'll defend that as we go. You, if you are a Christian, are not allowed to not like your brothers and sisters in Christ. Christians cannot continue in conflict. That's the sermon. That's what we're going to look at. Let's see why. And then let's see what we can do about it by the grace of God. Don't forget, who are you angry with right now? Who are you in conflict with? Let's read this very short but very important passage. Philippians chapter 4. Uh, only verses 2 and 3. This is what God wants to say to you today. I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. If you would bow with me, let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe that we can accomplish nothing 
of lasting value without the Holy Spirit. So we ask now uh, that by your Spirit that you would work uh, through your word. Soften hearts, Lord. Uh, We are all of us uh, guilty when it comes to this topic. Uh, Shape us, sanctify us, uh, point us to Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that we would hate sin. I pray that we would hate the sin of conflict. And I pray that we would delight in the infinite resources you offer to us uh, through your Son, Jesus Christ. Help us now, we ask and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, I had a hard time with my points this week. I was in conflict with my points about conflict. Uh, my first crack at point one was Christians must agree. I like how provocative that sounds. Christians must agree. I know you're already thinking up objections uh, to that, um, but I'm using the terminology of verse two. Let's set the stage of our context, and then we'll begin to apply it. The main verb in this passage is to agree, but we need to define what exactly that means. Paul, seemingly out of nowhere, just drops two names on us, two women, great names, uh, Euodia and Syntyche. I've heard pastors pronounce these names a dozen different ways, so I don't know if I'm doing it correctly. Uh, Vivian's having a boy in a couple of weeks, so she's off the hook. Anthony and Lacey, we don't know yet, so guys, here's... Some ladies' options if you need a lady's name. Um, I like these names. Euodia probably means prosperous, and Syntyche means fortunate, prosperous, and fortunate. But neither of them at the moment were experiencing much prosperity or fortune. And we honestly know very little about these ladies. All we really know is that they're in some sort of conflict, and it was apparently a significant conflict. But imagine the scene 2,000 years ago. Think about the original reception of this letter. Most churches today don't even have a scripture reading. The church we visited on vacation didn't have a scripture reading. So I like for us to have scripture readings and long ones sometimes. It's unfamiliar, but it wouldn't have been unfamiliar to the Philippians. When you get a letter from the Apostle Paul, you read it. You read the whole thing publicly. So imagine your Euodia and Syntyche, you're sitting there in the service, you're surrounded by the rest of the church, you're listening to this wonderful letter on joy from the founder of your church. Maybe they started to pick up a little bit on what was going on around chapter 2, verses 2 and 4. Maybe they started to get a little bit uncomfortable there. But then there's the wonderful explanation of Christ in chapter 2, the wonderful explanation of the gospel in chapter 3. They're probably delighting in those things, happy to be away from the topic of harmony and and unity. But then, bam, all of a sudden, I entreat, I urge, I beg Euodia and Syntyche. He named names. It would be like if in the middle of this sermon on conflict, I were to stop talking generally and I would say, I entreat Elsie and I entreat Susan to agree in the Lord. Is that awkward? Everyone's kind of wondering, are they in conflict? No, I picked intentionally the two nicest people in the church. They're they're better than us. Uh, They've never been in conflict with anyone so that you wouldn't think I was passively, aggressively accusing them of being in conflict. They're not in conflict. But that hopefully illustrates the significance. Everyone's like, wait, what? He mentioned names. That's what Paul does here. He mentions their names in front of the whole church. This letter is read, and then bam, here are these two ladies called out by the apostle Paul. So whatever the specific nature of the conflict, we can know that it was pretty serious. It was significant enough 
for Paul himself to address it in this letter. It was significant enough to be one of the main reasons uh, for the writing of this letter. It was significant enough to be brought to the attention of Paul. Remember, he's not there. He's in jail across the Adriatic Sea in Rome. But he knows about this conflict. So it was a major conflict between two major people in the church. And besides that, we just don't know a ton else about the conflict. If you remember back to the founding of the Philippian church in Acts chapter 16, Paul comes, he's now come to Europe for the first time. There's no synagogue in the town, which is where Paul usually would begin. So he heads out to the river to what seems to be some sort of ladies prayer group. And it's there that he meets Lydia. And it's there that we get one of the most important verses on God's initiative and priority in salvation. Acts 16, 14. The Lord opened Lydia's heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. God has to speak and open. God has to act first. We were dead in our trespasses and sins, but God made us alive together in Christ. Regeneration. God's work precedes faith. Our work. So God opens Lydia's heart and she believes. Maybe, and we can only speculate here, maybe Euodia and Syntyche were part of this original group of women. They're, they're originals. They're, they're foundations, pillars of the church. Some commentators even propose that one of them must have been Lydia. But there's no evidence for that. There's no way to actually know that. But the point is that major players in the church are in major conflict. I think it's actually helpful that we don't know any of the specifics of the conflict. I think it's intentional on the part of the Holy Spirit. Did we know some of the finer details, we would be, attempted, we'd be tempted to apply uh, this teaching on conflict only to conflicts specifically to sim- similar to what was going on between these two women. But in not knowing the specific details, I think we're encouraged to take Paul's command and apply it generally to all conflict. But there is one thing before we move on to application that we can know about this conflict. We can know what it's not about. We can know that this conflict is not about doctrine. Because Paul has made it clear that doctrine is a reason for conflict. Paul had no problem causing conflict over doctrine. We just saw back in chapter 3, verse 2, those who were teaching a different doctrine preaching a different gospel, teaching that there was some work you had to add to complete Christ's work. Paul calls those people dogs, evildoers, and mutilators of the flesh. Those are words of conflict. When the gospel was on the line, Paul went to war because he knew that the gospel is everything. The gospel is about Christ. Knowing Christ is everything, that means anything that distorts that knowledge, anything that distorts Christ or distorts the gospel must be rejected and combated against. Just go read the book of Galatians if you want to see Paul in conflict. It's against false teaching and bad doctrine. Well, that's not what's happening here. This is not a conflict over doctrine. It can't be. This must then be some sort of interpersonal conflict, a disagreement over something else that was significant enough that it was causing division between these two women and now potentially division in the church at large as well. And so Paul boldly and lovingly confronts the conflict. Actually, had he, we think he's being mean, 
by naming names. Actually, had he not named names, had he, like most of us, tried to kind of stay out of it, like, oh, you know, it's not my business, tried to avoid the conflict. I am a conflict avoider, right? I know that about myself. I do not like conflict. Had Paul been doing that, he would have actually been unloving. Because conflict is sin. And sin is always bad. Sin separates. Sin separates us from God. And we're seeing very clearly here that sin also separates us from the people of God. Sin separates us from one another. So the loving thing to do is always to lovingly and graciously deal with sin. And that's what Paul does here. And so he names them. He entreats them. We don't really use that word anymore. He implores them. He urges them. He pleads with them. And notice that he doesn't even do it generally to, to them, but individually. It's like he stops and looks at each one and addresses each of them. I entreat Euodia. I entreat Syntyche. Both of you, each of you, agree in the Lord. And so with the context finally set, we're ready to figure out what that really means. What does it mean to agree? Again, I wanted to title this point, Christians must agree. And we must in the sense that Paul means here. But that doesn't obviously mean that we must agree on everything. You don't have to agree with me that the Tar Heels are the best and most important sports team in the world. You should agree with me, but you don't have to. Uh, we don't have to agree on taste of music. We don't have to agree on specific uh, preferences of style. I don't expect you to all have the same views of me when it comes to some points of secondary doctrine. You don't have to agree with all of my understanding of, of eschatology, of, of end times questions. Uh, we don't make that a test of orthodoxy. Here. We don't require you to agree with me on my view of the cessation of the sign gifts. No more tongues, no more prophecy, no more healing. You should agree with me, but you don't have to agree with me. So Christians obviously don't have to agree on everything. What does Paul then mean by saying they must agree? Well, Greek again to the rescue. I think the King James does a little bit of a better job here. The ESV is correct. It's giving us the proper sense of what me, Paul means, get along, agree, but it's masking how he goes about doing that. The King James puts it like this, that they be of the same mind. Or even more literally, it says that they think the same. And that's really important because that brings us back to one of the key words of the book of Philippians. We looked at it again two weeks ago, and it is the word think. Ask anyone what the book of Philippians is about, and they'll say joy, and they're not wrong. So we've titled this series Gospel-Generated Joy. Not just joy, but joy that comes from the gospel. Joy that is rooted in Jesus. And in part, we know that this book is largely about joy because Paul uses some form of the word joy 11 times in this short letter. But he uses some form of the word think 12 times in this short letter. So two of the major themes in the book, rejoicing and thinking. And much of what Paul is saying is that we rejoice by thinking. We're getting there in a couple weeks in chapter 4, verse 8. Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. And so when Paul tells them to think the same, he's picking back up on one of his main 
themes, one of his main exhortations. Remember, right thinking leads to right living. And so when he tells them to think the same, he's now explicitly applying to them what he has earlier commanded of everyone. Because his language here in chapter 4, verse 2, is almost identical to his language back in chapter 2, verse 2. So flip over a page and look back at chapter 2, verse 2. He says, complete my joy. There it is again. We'll get back to joy again next week. Well, how? How complete my joy? By being of the same mind. There it is again. Literally, by thinking the same. It's the exact same as 4-2. And he says it again at the end of 2-2. Being in full accord and of one mind. Literally, it says being one thinking. Unity. Unity in thinking is what he's talking about. And unity is, is critically important in the church. Though we don't talk about it a whole lot. How unified are we supposed to be? John 17, 21. Jesus, the high priestly prayer, praying to the Father. I ask that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. We are to be one. We are to be unified as the Father and Son are one and unified. And that's obviously a pretty high standard. Conflict, by definition, destroys unity. Why is that such a problem? Well, besides, in the sense that it is a disobedience to a direct command of God, well, Jesus goes on in the high priestly prayer. He wants us to be one as he and the Father are. Why? He says, so that... Here's a purchase statement. So that the world may believe that you have sent me. Verse 23, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. So unity, he says, so that the world may believe, so that the world may know. Nora, our, our three-year-old, asked me this week, she said, why, why is God invisible? Kids' questions, right? Come on, uh, Nora. And before I could come up with a bad answer, Emma, Emma thankfully jumped in by quoting the Shorter Catechism. She said, God is a spirit whose being, wisdom, power, holiness, goodness, justice, and truth are infinite, eternal, and unchangeable. Like, oh, yeah, that, that's it. That's the answer. God's invisible because he's a spirit. That means John uh, 1.18, 1 John 4.12, no one has ever seen God. You can't. He's a spirit. He's invisible. But you can see us. You can see the people of God. The church, as the quote I've been using from Calvin in Sunday school, it's the church's job to make the invisible kingdom visible. Well, in the same way, it's the church's job to make the invisible God visible. That's why Mark Dever titles one of his books, Church, subtitle, The Gospel Made Visible. The Gospel Made Visible. Visible. If you combine that title with one of Piper's book's titles, God is the gospel, and you do a little substitution, since God is the gospel, he's the good news, he is what we get. Right? If you then substitute that, you would come up with the church, God made visible. That's why we're here. And that's why conflict is such a problem. The church, as the people of God, as the body of Christ, exists to glorify God by worshiping him, and by making him known. The world looks to us to see 
God. We are supposed to reveal him. We are supposed to show the world what he is like. And so in the church, when we are characterized by conflict, we reveal to the world a God who is supposedly characterized by conflict. And so we reveal to the world a false picture of God, and thus a false picture of the gospel. That's why unity is so important in the church. That's why Paul commands Euodia and Syntyche to agree, to think the same. That's why our point, Christians cannot continue in conflict. And notice, I didn't say Christians cannot experience conflict. Of course they can. We see that here. We see that in many other places in Scripture. We see that in our own lives. Christians saved by the grace of God are, as Paul, are, as Paul has just said in 3.12, not already perfect. Sin remains. Well, sin creates conflict. So there will be conflict. That's inevitable. Conflict happens in marriage because you take two sinners and you shove them together in intimate, close proximity. There will be conflict. We're a church. You take dozens of sinners. There's about 100 people in this room. And you shove them together in intimate, close proximity. Well, there will be conflict. That's not a question. The question is, what do we do with that conflict? How do we respond to that conflict? How do we resolve that conflict? There will be conflict, but Christians cannot continue or persist in that conflict. And as I mentioned in the beginning, I don't just mean the outright war-raging conflict. I mean the, the I just don't like him, we just don't get along conflict. I want to make the case that even that type of conflict is unchristian. Christians in that type of conflict are a contradiction. You are not allowed to not like brothers and sisters in Christ. You'll sometimes hear it said, oh, yeah, yeah, we, have to, we have to love one another, but we don't really have to like one another. No, I completely disagree with that. Make that case for me from Scripture, please. I don't see that anywhere. Right? Of course, we're not all going to be best friends. But that's different than not liking one another and then trying to defend that lack of like. You are not allowed to remain at odds with brothers and sisters in Christ. Again, I know that sounds insane. You're already coming up with objections. Someone's going to come make an objection to me after the service. Again, prophecy maybe does still exist. I know it's coming. It's going to happen. Again, I know this sounds pretty radical. But we tend to forget that the Christian life is pretty radical. We just did Matthew 5, 9 a few weeks ago in Bible study. Here's a couple of verses. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. That's part of the Beatitudes. Right? Those are the characteristics of the people of God. This is what God's people are like who have experienced his grace. They make and they pursue peace. 544, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. And Jesus isn't saying we love people to earn God's favor, but he is saying that when God has graciously and freely given to us his favor, his grace, he's making us into a kind of people, and it's a kind of people who love and pray for enemies. Yeah, we're not even talking about brothers and sisters in Christ, we're talking about enemies, Matthew 6, 12, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Verse 15, don't miss this. Professing Christians really should consider this verse. If you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your father forgive your trespasses. Again, we don't forgive so that God will forgive us. That's not what Jesus is saying. We forgive because God 
has forgiven us. Our forgiveness of others is a sign that we have received the forgiveness of God. So if there is no forgiveness of others, that's a possible sign that there has been no forgiveness of God. If you refuse to give forgiveness, you demonstrate that you possibly haven't received forgiveness or at best are not understanding at all what it is that you have received in being forgiven by Christ. Matthew 18, 23 through 35, the parable of the unforgiving servant. You probably know the story. This guy's forgiven a huge, unpayable billions of dollars of debt that he owed. He then goes and refuses to forgive a small payable debt that is owed to to him. And he gets cast into prison. And the master says, should you not have had mercy as I had mercy on you? And then Jesus applies it. In verse 35, so also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Guys, God takes unforgiveness and conflict very, very seriously. The only thing Paul talks about more seriously uh, than conflict is, is false teaching. It's false teaching and then it's division and then it's conflict. Those are the two things that Paul is most uh, against. Scripture takes this far more seriously than we tend to today. The Christian life is pretty radical because we have been radically changed by the radical grace of God. And so a Christian who persists, who continues in conflict is a serious problem. It should not and it cannot be. That person that you're thinking of, your your pink elephant, if you are in Christ, you are not allowed to be angry at that person persistently. You are not allowed to continue in conflict and anger and unforgiveness with that person. Back to the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 23. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. All those no conflict passes we just ran through, just the book of Matthew. (laughs) That's the first book of the New Testament. We didn't look at any of the other books because we don't have time. We could go on and on and on. Christians cannot continue in conflict. If you are in a conflict with a brother or sister in Christ, then you are in some sense in conflict with Christ. As I tell my girls, you cannot be in conflict with your sister and be good with me. That that, that doesn't work. All of you are my daughters. If you have a problem with one of them, well, then you have a problem with me. Conflict is serious. Unforgiveness is one of the most concerning signs that there is. Guys, listen, I am in no way trying to say any of this is simple or easy. I know there's all kinds of questions and complications and things we could throw out there. I know that. But I do want us to take more seriously what it is that we have been called to in Christ. We well know and eagerly and regularly cite 1 Corinthians 1.31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. We know that and regularly cite it, but we rarely practice it. Uh, that verse says that Christians, uh, Christians, every decision, every decision is to be governed and determined by a concern for God's glory. Every thought, every word, every act, every decision is to be done in reference to God. We know it. We rarely do it. But we don't even know the verse that follows it. 1 Corinthians 1.32. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. Jews, Greeks, church of God. In other words, everyone, anyone. Give no offense to anyone. Literally, the word means to to strike 
not to not strike or to not cause someone to stumble. Paul says, don't give anyone reason for offense. Simply don't be the cause of conflict. 131, do all things to the glory of God. 132, following right on its heels, applying it to conflict, give no offense to anyone. It means that one of the main ways we glorify God is by living and speaking in a way in which we do not cause and create unnecessary conflict. We glorify God first by loving him. John 17, 3, knowing him. We've summed up the Christian life with Philippians 3, 10, knowing Christ and becoming like him. To know him is to become like him. And he is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There's no conflict there. There's no unforgiveness there in that list. So if you're characterized more by the fruit of conflict than the fruit of the Spirit, you need to address that and look at that and ask yourself why and deal with it. Unforgiveness is deadly. As someone has said, we get so angry with someone, and to show how angry we are with them, we drink poison. That's that's what anger and unforgiveness is. It's poison. It, It kills you. Anger and unforgiveness kills you. It is sin. Sin always separates. To hold on to it is to persist in that separation. So Paul says, agree in the Lord. Think the same way. Christians cannot remain in conflict. Reconcile. It's rarely easy, but it is always right. So what do we do? How do we do this? Well, let's go to our second point. This one will be very short. Christians need Christians to not continue in conflict. This is where alliteration doesn't help. I got too obsessed with it. You need help is the point of this second point. You need help to stop the conflict. Look at verse 3. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers. Stop there. Because conflict is complicated. And nothing that I'm saying is to say, hey, this is easy and this is simple and just get over it. No, conflict is complicated. So, point number two, get help. Paul asks his true companion to help Euodia and Syntyche. We don't know who this is. Uh, some people think it's Luke that he is talking to. Some people think Paul left Luke behind in Philippi while he was in Rome. I don't know. Uh, some people think if you look down at footnote 2 at the bottom of your page, if you're in the, the ESV, some think that the word shouldn't be translated because it's someone's name. Sisygus. Maybe he's talking to a specific guy named Sisygus. Only problem with that is we've never seen that name anywhere else ever in ancient Greek. So we, we don't know. We don't know who he's talking to. But the point is that they and all of us will need help in the resolution of conflict. So, if you're feeling uncomfortable right now, if you've got a pink elephant in mind, if you know you are in unchristian conflict with another Christian and you have no idea what to do, great, get help. So we're all a mess. We are trying to create a culture here where we understand the power and the pervasiveness of sin in all of us, me 
included, where we own it and we confess it. If we are saved by grace and grace alone, then there should be no problem and no fear in owning that we mess up frequently and that we sin and that we need help in and out of that sin. I need help in and out of my sin. So, again, it's simple. Talk to somebody. Come talk to me. Go talk to Mike, and we'll listen and walk with you through a difficult process. But it doesn't have to be one of us. Find a godly brother or sister in Christ that you can speak with. And not for the purpose of gossiping about what so-and-so did to you, but to confess your sin, to confess your part in the problem, and to seek their wisdom and their prayer and their help in your situation. The point is, do something. And one of the best things that you can do is to get help. Here's why the church is so important. We are never supposed to do any of this by ourselves. Right? So much of American Christianity for the last 200 years has been this weird, hyper-individualized, right? just me and the Lord, or just me and my Bible. That's actually unbiblical. God gives us the church and gives us one another because we're supposed to walk through these things and do these things with brothers and sisters in Christ. I desperately need your help, and you desperately need the help of brothers and sisters who are around you. Guys, conflict does not just go away, ever. Time does not heal all wounds. That is false. That's, that's not in the Bible. Uh, confession, repentance, forgiveness, reconciliation does. God does. If you are thick in the middle of conflict today, I entreat you, don't do nothing. Start simply by talking to someone. Christians need other Christians to deal with conflict. But third and finally, and most importantly, Christians need Christ to not continue in conflict. Look back at verse 2. We've ignored it so far. Here's the key to everything. Here is the great conflict killer. Christ is the great conflict killer. Paul entreats them not just to agree to think the same, but to agree to think the same in the Lord. That's what you need. That's the only solution to your conflict. It's Christ and the gospel. Go back again a page to chapter 2 where Paul lays all this out. We've already seen verse 2. Be of the same mind. Same thing he told them in 4 verse 2. Well, now he's going to tell us specifically how. He's going to give us some steps. Look at verse 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. Stop there. That by itself, if we could do it by the grace of God, would kill all conflict. James 4. Why is there conflict among you? James explains the root and source of all conflict. Hey, guys, why is there conflict, fights, and quarrels? This is because of the passions and lusts and desires at war within you. It says you desire, you do not have, you covet, and you cannot obtain, so you fight. James says that evil desire is the cause of conflict. Selfish desire is the cause of conflict. So Paul says, in the same spirit, countering that, count others more significant than yourself. In conflict, one, sometimes one, you may be the exception to the rule, but almost always both parties are selfishly counting themselves more significant than the other. Paul says, do the opposite. Verse 4, he goes on, Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. 
stop there. Again, if we could do that by the grace of God, that alone would kill all conflict. The cause of conflict is selfish desire. It's each party looking to their own interests. So Paul tells us, don't look to your own interests. Look to the interests of others. And that will kill conflict. Hear me. This is what each of us are called to do in all conflict. Again, it's hard. The, the adrenaline starts to flow. We start to think much less clearly than we normally would. We go into, you either respond to conflict with silence or with violence, but in some way we respond negatively. We get aggressive. We stop thinking uh, clearly. But here's what we are called to do as Christians. We are to look to and consider the interests of others and seek their spiritual good. Every time. Like the only time we ever fight, Melissa and I, is when I am selfishly looking to my own interests, right? When those, those, the defenses start to go up, right? I start to kind of double down and say, wait a second, right? This is going to look negatively on me. And I start to think about what she's thinking about me. What is she implying? What does this say? And I start immediately thinking about myself and my own interests. And how do I defend myself? How do I assert myself? How do I justify myself in this situation and prove that she is wrong? I'm thinking only about me in almost any and every conflict we ever have, which is rare by the grace of God. Right? We are always selfishly focused on self in the midst of conflict. So, in conflict, your charge and responsibility is to look to the interest of the other party and to seek their spiritual good. How can I help this person be more like Jesus in the midst of this conflict? Man, try asking yourself that question in the heat of the battle. Were we to do that, there would be no conflict. But man... How hard is that? How impossible is that? How in the world can we sinful, selfish people? And remember, that's what sin is. It is in curvitas, in say, it is when we are curved in on ourselves. How can we then turn out and be first concerned with the need and the good of others? Verse 5, Paul tells us. We're still in chapter 2, verse 5. Have this Mind. There's the word again. Think this way. Have this mind and don't miss this. This is so important, which is yours in Christ Jesus. It is yours. Not develop this, not seek this, not you better get this mind. He says, have the mind that is yours already, that you already possess as a gift of God's grace in Christ. Which is what? What is the mind of Christ? Verse 6, one of the best passages in the whole Bible. We've read it a lot, but we cannot read it enough. We cannot think enough about these things. Consider this, and then consider your conflict, and then consider that person that you're angry with in light of this. Though he was in the form of God, Christ did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The gospel, that's the good news of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. And as we say, the good news doesn't make any sense without the bad news. Well, what's the bad news? Sin is the bad news. Well, what's the outcome? What's the result of sin? Romans 1.18, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness 
of men. Romans 5, 8, we were sinners. Romans 5, 10, we were enemies of God. Sin makes us enemies of God, which means that in our sin, we were in conflict with God himself. If you are here this morning and you are not a Christian, if you have not received the grace of God and the forgiveness of sins, you need to hear now that at this moment, you are in conflict with the creator God of the universe. God is your enemy. He is perfectly good and pure, and thus he must be against and opposed to all that is not. Sin is not good and pure. If you are a sinner, God is against and opposed to you. Just go read some of the Psalms. The bad news is that all of us were or are in conflict with God, which means that the good news is so good. The good news is what God has done himself to solve that conflict, to kill that conflict. Romans 5.10, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Colossians 1.20, and so making peace by the blood of his cross. The good news is that we former enemies of God can be at peace with God, not through anything that we do, but entirely through what God himself does for us in Jesus Christ. We rightly owe death for our sin. You rightly owe death for your sin. Jesus Christ comes to die that death for us. He pays our debt. He pays our penalty. And in so doing, he reconciles us to God and makes peace. Non-Christian, if you haven't received God's forgiveness offered in Jesus Christ, hey, you don't need to worry about any other conflict right now with anyone else. You need to worry about your conflict with God. You need to repent and believe. You need to turn away from your sin and turn to Christ. Call out to him. Confess your sin against him. Confess that there is nothing that you can do to save yourself. Confess that you believe and trust that your only hope is Jesus Christ. Christian, if you have received God's forgiveness offered in Jesus Christ, then you need to remember and rejoice in that forgiveness again. You need to remember that you deserved hell. You did nothing, and you received heaven. You deserved eternal death. You did nothing, and you received eternal life. All by a good and gracious God giving to you the opposite of what you sought and deserved. You set yourself in conflict with God himself, and he killed that conflict by killing his own son. And if that's true, you have... Zero excuse to continue in conflict with another Christian. And I, I don't care what they did. I don't care how bad or how long. I don't care how awkward it could be. Anger and unforgiveness is killing you. Do something about it. Repent and seek reconciliation. Your goal as a believer in all things is to be the glory of God. And that includes your relationships and that includes your conflict. Your goal and your conflict is to be the spiritual good of others as you are commanded by Paul to not look out for your own interest but to seek the interests of others. So in closing, we should all of us be asking ourselves three questions this morning. Three questions to ask yourself. Number one, be honest. Am I angry with or in conflict with someone in the church? Am I angry with or am I in conflict with someone in the church? Number two, 
Is this conflict more important to me than my own spiritual health? Is that conflict more important to you than your own spiritual health? It's, it's poison. It's, it's, it's killing you. And then number three, is this conflict more important to you than the honor and glory of Christ? Is this conflict more important to you than the honor and glory of Christ himself? Because you, as a Christian, as the people of God, as the temple of God, exist to make him known to the watching world. So is holding on to that conflict more important than the honor and glory of Christ himself? Don't do nothing. Do something about any conflict that harms you, harms one who is your brother or sister in Christ, and brings dishonor to God. Consider your conflict in light of the cross. Think about these things. Consider your conflict in light of the gospel. He who has been forgiven much loves much. And in Christ, we have to constantly be reminding ourselves that we have been forgiven an infinitely large debt. And so now go and do likewise. Ephesians 4, 31. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Put it away. It has no place in the Christian life. What are we to do instead? Verse 32. And be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. That's the key. As God in Christ forgave you. Agree in the Lord. Christians cannot continue in conflict because of Jesus Christ. Let's close with a word of prayer. Father, help us now, we pray. Father, do in us now what I cannot do. Do in us what is impossible for us to do in ourselves. We ask that you, by your spirit, would work through your word. Father, if we're angry right now, help us to ask ourselves why. If there's conflict, help us to ask ourselves why. Father, I pray that anything that I said was incorrect, that you would set it aside, and that your word and your truth would be clear. Father, I pray that we would hate sin. I pray that we would hate conflict. I pray that we would so delight in your son, Jesus Christ, that we would desire to be more like him, and that we would then desire to relate to one another more like him. Father, make us kind. Make us tenderhearted. Help us to forgive one another as you have so eternally forgiven us in Jesus Christ. Forgive us for how quickly we forget. Forgive us for how much we minimize what it is that you have done and bought and secured for us in Jesus. Father, comfort us now with the gospel. Challenge us now with the gospel. I pray that we would be doers of the word and not hearers only by your grace uh, through the work of your spirit. And we ask and we pray all this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.